Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. The following podcast is one of Robert's original messages to men on manhood, found here under the series heading, Authentic Manhood. As you listen to it, we hope it will give you both personal encouragement and spiritual inspiration to live better as a man. Sometimes we miss the obvious. I heard a story of Sherlock Holmes and his famous assistant, Mr. Watson. They went on a camping trip together. And after they had had a a very long day, they laid down for the night. And Holmes said to Watson, look up at the sky and tell me what you see. And Watson replied, he said, I see a million stars. And he says, what does that tell you? And of course, uh, Watson was a very astute observer, and uh, as he looked up into the sky, he said, well, you know, he said, first of all, astronomically, it tells me that uh, there are millions and millions of stars out there, and probably with it, thousands and thousands of planets. He said, theologically, as I look up into this great heaven, it tells me that, well, that God is big, and I'm small. And on top of that, meteorologically, tells me, seeing the clear sky, that we're probably going to have a great day tomorrow hiking and seeing this great wilderness that we're in. And then Watson turns to Holmes and he says, what does it tell you? And Holmes said, well, Watson, it tells me that somebody stole our tent. (laughs) You see, sometimes we miss the obvious. The most obvious thing that's in front of us, we avoid seeing for one reason or another. And this morning, I want to discuss with you something that, well, really, I think is obvious if we really want to see it. But as we talked last week, it's something oftentimes our world, our culture, maybe you, don't want to see. And that's because within each one of us, there's a very real heart wound. Not physically. It's a spiritual wound. And it's deep. And it comes with birth. It's imprinted within our very nature. I believe only it explains why people who grow up in even the best environments go bad. I believe only it explains why some of the most educated cultures of the world have done some of the most heinous crimes against humanity. And the 20th century was exhibit A of how that could occur. I I believe that only it explains why all of us here, even this week, will feel a frequent and sometimes powerful tug to do wrong, even when we know what's right to do. Only it explains those things. In the movie A Few Good Men, there's a famous line as Tom Cruise is, as the prosecuting attorney, is uh, interrogating the general played by Jack Nicholson. And Cruise consistently demands, I want to know the truth. I want to know the truth. And finally, Nicholson, just in in an outburst of outrage, says, you can't handle the truth. Remember that? Well, maybe we can't. Maybe last week you couldn't. It's too difficult to hear, isn't it? It's a deep wound. But the truth is, and listen, 
The truth is, we don't come into this world good. That's the hard truth. We come into this world wounded. With a fallen, self-serving nature that often corrupts life. With no connection to eternity, even though there is a sense of it in our heart that we bear all the way through this life. We have this innate sense that there's something more. But we're not connected to it. We come into this world alienated from the God who made us. That's the truth. If you can handle it. Now I want to make an honest confession here at the front. You're probably wondering what the, the, the point of honest confession is on your outline. And it's this. I don't like talking about this wound. Personally. It's not my favorite up at the top of the list subject. To engage people around. It's bitter. It goes down hard. And I know some of you are saying to yourself, even probably as you got up on this cold, wintry morning and came in here, you know, I don't want to go listen to the fact that I'm depraved. That's not my favorite subject. It's discouraging. And you know what? It is. Let's just all confess it together. It is. But here's why I think it's so important that we talk about it. Because... Until we get at the bottom of what our problems are, and that's why we've been looking back all semester, until we engage what our culture doesn't want to see, until we think about why we are the way we are and why we struggle the way we do, we're cutting ourselves off from the very lifeblood of learning how to become an authentic man. And at the core of being an authentic man, a man must come to terms with himself and his nature and why he is the way he is and how he's been equipped for ill or for good in this world. And part of that is discovering the deepest wound of all, which is the heart wound. So this morning, all I'm going to ask, you, ask of you is this, that you just hear me out. And what I've done on your outlines, if you notice, I've listed a number of scriptures. I'm going to show them to you on the screen, but the reason the scriptures are listed there for you is because this week, I think it would be very helpful for you to go back and read them for yourself. Don't take my word for it. Just open the word, look at it, and see what it says, the mirror that it gives you into your own life. And this morning, we'll talk about the implications of what all this means. So here's what I want to do. Let's begin just by reviewing the definition of this heart wound. I said we are all fallen and flawed creatures at odds by nature with our Creator and each other. Now let me ask you, is that hard for you to believe? For some people it is. They want to believe better of themselves. How were you born into this world? Do you think of yourself, and this is very important, do you think of yourself as coming into the world, born good, you had all these assets that could have blossomed into this great manliness, but it was your environment that beat you down. Well, that's partially true for some of us. But is that the only reason we are the way we are? Is because the nurturing you had held you back? Or is it also the fact that there's something wrong in your nature? Here's what Ephesians 2.3 says. It says it this way. <laughs> this is probably pretty hard edge. It just says, we started out bad being born with evil natures. By evil natures, it means selfish, 
self-centered, self-absorbed. And because of that, there are no born good guys. There are no pure hearts here in the room. There is no one here who has natural nobility. Those don't just arise out of nature. Instead, Romans 3 puts it this way. Look at what Romans 3 says. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Boy, that's pretty hard-edged. Are you telling me, Scripture, that there's not one good person in the world? I know good people. Remember we talked about that last week? There are people who can do good. We're talking people who are good. It's their very nature. And the Scripture says there's none of us who have a natural inclination towards pure goodness. There are no pure hearts. There's no born good men. We're all fallen and flawed creatures. And the world is our journey to find redemption from that. Now I want you to notice the pain that flows from this wound. Four things the Scripture says. And I'm taking this all from the mirror of Scripture. First, Scripture says we're born separated from God. Ephesians 2.12 says, Remember that you were once separate from Christ, having no hope and without God in the world. This is how every person enters the world, separate from Christ and without God. And that's because, as we learned last week, the original unity between God and man was severed when our first parents, it's unfortunate, it goes back to our first parents, but the Scripture says when our first parents, Adam and Eve, disobeyed God, dismissed His Word, and in their own flesh decided to go their own independent way. And in that moment, according to the Scripture, because of that heinous crime against heaven, their natures were cursed, and the relationship with God was broken, and that condition became permanent, and it was passed down to every generation that flowed out of their loins, which means all of us. So we all come into the world with the relationship broken and with our nature's curse, that is, flawed or contained in such a way that the only thing that we really think about the most is ourselves. And that's called depravity. And that's why Romans 5.18 says, Through the one transgression there resulted condemnation to all people afterwards. We enter the world separate from Christ and without God. Secondly, we're bound to a life of futility. Solomon puts it this way in Ecclesiastes 1.14. He says, I've seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. You see, without God, without a sense of God in our life, really the only motivation left is to get all we can while we can. And the only two realities for man without God are pleasure and pain. That's it. And that's how we live our lives. Trying to escape pain, trying to pursue pleasure in whatever forms they take. But that's because there's no higher purpose 
unless something happens along the way to alter that perspective. That pursuit, that vanity, is imprinted within us because our nature is limited to seeing this life as all that there is. Third, we're enslaved to a corrupt nature. Here's the way Job said it in Job 5.7. He says, man is simply born for trouble as sparks fly upward. That's why in Scripture we're called sinners. Now that's a very unpopular term today. But the word sin means just to miss the mark. That's all it means, literally. It just means to miss the mark. And the Scripture says we're, we're born sinners. We are sinners. We go out and then prove it by sinning. And what that mainly means is that we go out into life and we just keep missing the mark. We miss it in our marriage. We miss it in our parenting. We miss it in our personal lives. We miss it in our relationships with each other. We miss it with our ethical edge. We just keep falling a little short. We can't seem to fully measure up. And if we refuse to see why that's taking place, we refuse to see that that's part of our nature, then we cut ourselves off from the solution of how to change it all. And we become enslaved to that nature. Finally, letter D, we're bent to do evil. Here's the way Galatians, and see if you can identify this. Maybe you're thinking, well, I'm not that bad. Well, here's what Galatians says when we talk about missing the mark and the bent that we have to do evil. Galatians chapter 5, it says, But when you follow after your own inclinations, your lives will produce these evil results, impure thoughts, eagerness for lustful pleasure, idolatry, hatred, and fighting, Jealousy and anger, constant effort to get the best for yourself, complaints and criticisms, the feeling that everyone else is wrong except those in your little group. And there will be envy and murder and drunkenness and wild parties and all that sort of thing. And I say, I'm guilty. Because that's me. And that's not because somebody trained me that direction. As the verse says, I just had a natural bent and inclination that direction. As I came into the world, as I inherited this nature, that then I just live out unless I make some supernatural contact that changes all that. I'll just naturally move that direction because it's me. Remember Dick Morris? Anybody remember Dick Morris? <clears throat> Every once in a while you'll see him because from time to time he is featured on um, the different news shows as a political commentator. But back in the Clinton administration, he was President Clinton's top political advisor until a tabloid exposed uh, his involvement with a prostitute and another woman. And uh, he fell from his position and then went through a a period of, of uh, despair. And uh, in the midst of that, there was an article uh, in the Washington newspaper that I picked up about an interview with Dick Morris and what uh, he was reflecting out of that tragedy in his life. And I want you to listen because he says some very interesting things. He says, Morris, in this interview, acknowledged that he had been egotistical and out of control before his 
precipitous fall from grace. He ignored his wife, ignored his friends, ignored the rules. My sense of reality was altered, Morris told the Associated Press. I started out being excited working for the president. Then I became arrogant. Then I became grandiose. And then I became self-destructive. His hands shook and his voice quivered as Morris struggled for the words to, ex to explain what led him to a year of tryst with a call girl and a lengthy relationship with another woman and a child that was born out of that relationship, all the while married to his wife, Eileen. Both relationships were revealed in the tabloids during the presidential campaign. And then Morris says these words. It's too simple to say it was a sexual addiction. Saying I was sick like I had pneumonia or the mumps. It's not that at all. I had, no, I have, he said, a fundamental flaw in my character, a fundamental weakness in my personality, a fundamental sin, if you will. I'm prone to believing that the rules don't apply to me. Where does that come from? We read something like that and we go, Man, I'm sorry for that guy. But when we say that, we miss the obvious, don't we? Because that is us. I'm prone the same direction. It's like we sing in the great hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Why is that? Because it's in our nature. It's who we are at the core. Now I want you to know, when a culture, a community, if you will, gives itself to believing it's good or it can be good and it doesn't need God, it begins to move away from those things that are noble and right and it begins to move in and actually begin to live out the depravity at a community level. And not only that, while it does that in its own depravity, it begins to approve of those things that a more righteous culture would look at and go, man, that is way off the mark. And yet a community can get so lost in its own depravity that it doesn't see it anymore. It's interesting, when you look into the Old Testament, you see a once godly community move into its depravity without God and you see what surfaces. In the New Testament, you see in the Romans and the Greeks a culture that didn't need God and moves away from that thinking, we can do it, we have the goodness in ourselves, and you see that same depravity arise, and you see it in our day as well. I want to give you two examples from the Scripture. One of Israel as it moved away from God, and just listen to the description of the culture that believes it's good and it can do it without God. Here's what it says in the book of Hosea. Hear the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel. Now this is the prophet speaking to this culture. For the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of this land because, as he looks at it, there's no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. We don't need God. We can do it ourselves. But now here's what is in the land as God is removed. 
There is swearing. There is deception. There is murder. There is stealing. There is adultery. They employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns, and everyone who lives in it languishes, along with the beast of the field and the birds of the sky, and also the fish of the sea disappear. The whole environment is even corrupted. And yet, and yet, let no one find fault, and let none offer reproof, because in this culture they have gone deep in their depravity. Does that sound like some country you know? Let's go to the New Testament about a thousand years later. And when you go here, you go into the book of Romans, and here's what it says. And speaking of the Roman culture, it says, they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, so God gave them. Okay, you don't need me. You can do it on your own because you're good. So God gives them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness and wickedness and greed and evil and full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and malice. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they acknowledge the ordinance of God, they have rules. They're still on the books that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but just like in Hosea's day, they give hearty approval to those who practice these things. Does that sound like some place you've been to? You see, even in our day, even in America, as we move away from God, as we become a, a culture of depravity, always the same symptoms surface. You have adultery. You have swearing. You have bloodshed. You have deceit. And you have people trying to excuse it all. And that's because we refuse to see the obvious. There's something wrong deep in our hearts. Now, here's the implication of this wound. Let's bring it all down now to how this gets played out in everyday life for you and me. And again, I know these things are hard to hear. They're hard to say. But again, if we don't know the sickness, we don't know the solution. Seven things I want to give you generally about depravity. Here's what depravity just simply means to the everyday guy who's out on the street today. Number one, depravity means we're all dysfunctional by nature. You've heard the word dysfunction just means we don't function properly. And we like to think of dysfunctional families. That's not my family or another person who's dysfunctional. That's not like me. I'm functional. No, the scripture says we're all dysfunctional at some level. We're all selfish, self-absorbed, manipulative, blame-minded, greedy, or immoral. At some level, we're all there. And we may not practice it openly and outwardly. Maybe we're too slick for that. But inwardly. We wrestle with those very things. We are inclined to these directions. And we don't have to be taught them. They just surface naturally. And you see it in that little infant when you go to take the toy and put it up and they clutch it and they scream out, Mine! And they go over when you have the other little child and the other little child comes into the home and they go beat them up. 
because they want what's theirs, right? And you go, where did they learn that? You weren't teaching that. No, you didn't have to teach it. It was imprinted. Depravity means we're all dysfunctional. Secondly, depravity means, and this is very important, guys, for us here is on the quest for authentic manhood. Depravity means most of my real problems are in me, not out there. You know what my depravity leads me to do? Leads every man to do this, I think. It's to play the blame game. It's to look at my world and say, you know, what's really wrong with me is my employer just doesn't understand me. Or what's wrong with me is my wife just doesn't meet my needs. Or my family just doesn't understand. Or if I just had enough money because they don't pay me enough for what I do. And always my mode, my, my operation kind of method is to look outside of myself and excuse me and blame everything around me for my problems. And what we do to ourselves when we do that, and anytime a person or group of people begin to blame everything around them, they doom themselves to a mediocre life. When you hear blame constantly coming out of someone, that's a person who's never going to get anywhere. Because they're always going to be saying, the reason I can't get there is because of someone else. And they see most of their problems out there. And the scripture says, no, 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 no. It's not out there. It's in here. And that's where you need to start. Blame goes all the way back to the fall in Genesis. You know, the very first thing you see after the fall of man is blame. Look here in the scripture. Then the Lord called to the man and said to him, this is after they had gone their own independent way, disobeyed his word and decided we're going to do it ourselves. And God comes that day and he says, Adam, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of thee in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, yeah, I did it. No, that's not what he said. I was going to see if you guys were awake here. See, he asked, he asked Adam a direct question. Did you eat? But see, now he's fallen. So he's playing the game. He's our, he's our chief architect of this new game we're going to play for the generations. Oh, it's the woman you gave me. She's the problem. <laughs> and so God turns to the woman and she says, it's not my problem, it's the serpent you put here. It's really, in a, in a subtle kind of womanly way, you're the problem, God. Because if you hadn't put the serpent here, I would be in trouble. And that's the way we play the game. And that's the way some of you will play the game this week to avoid facing the real wound. Depravity means that most of my problems are in me, not out there. Thirdly, depravity cannot be eradicated by education, a better environment, self-understanding, or willpower. We must be saved from our depravity. Let me tell you what education does. Education can make you better on the outside. It can't transform you from the inside. Willpower 
can allow you to kind of put things together, but it can't transform you. Oftentimes, these things I've just mentioned can cover depravity for a while, but they cannot eradicate it. That's why Jesus said, and we'll talk about this more next week in John 3, 7. He took to a guy who was very, very together, at least on the outside, and he still said to him, Nicodemus, you must be born again. That's the only way this wound can be eradicated. Fourthly, depravity can wear all kinds of sophisticated masks to hide itself. The education mask, the personality mask, the rule keeper mask, the religious mask. Now listen very closely. Some of the most depraved people I know look good. They think smart. They act decent and respectable. They're culturally acceptable. But in truth, listen, in truth, they're slick at sin. Their education has just made them slick. Their personality has made them manipulative. Their religion has made them outwardly acceptable. But inwardly, they're slick at sin. Did you ever wonder, or did you ever find it interesting that when Jesus Christ was here on earth, the people he got in the most, uh, got agitated with the most, was most confronted with, was the religious class? The religious leaders? He, struck, he, he talked the strongest to those guys, the clerics. Just look, look at this. You want to see how strong he talked? Look what he said here in uh, Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of robbery and self-indulgence. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombstones, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. You see that on the news tonight with particular churches with child abuse, don't you? And you wonder, how could that be? Let me tell you how it could be. It's when a man, regardless of the collar he wears, uses his education and his personality and his religion to hide the wound that he won't face. That's how. And it shouldn't cause anybody to pull back and go, I just can't believe that. No, that's exactly the opposite response that we should have. We should be going, I can believe that. Because I see that in me. And if I don't know how to deal with it, it'll get me just like it got them. Depravity can wear all kinds of masks. Fifth, for me, depravity means that I can't trust myself. And we must not trust ourselves alone. That's why the wisdom of the Proverbs says this. It says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. 
What that means is instinctively, I am going to think selfishly and my perspectives are going to be selfish. And that's why I need the counsel and the interaction of others. When we talked about friends and mentors and all those things, I need that to see life as it really is, not how my rose-colored depravity paints it to be. Because there are issues some of you men are dealing with right now. You are absolutely convinced you know what the answer is. And if everybody would just shape up and get their act together, you'd be okay. And yet if you got some righteous men around you to talk to you about it and penetrate that wall of depravity that can only see things my way, on my terms, in my time, and they could finally penetrate that, you'd see a whole new world. And then it would challenge you to be a real man. That's what we mean by depravity. That's why number six is so important. Admitting my depravity is the first step to finding a real relationship with God. Admitting that depravity is the first step. That's why, by the way, that the, why, why you often see the greatest sinners make the greatest saints. Have you ever wondered that, how some guys can have such a miserable life and then they turn it around and, and then they have such a, a, um, a strong and um, aggressive spiritual life? If you want to know the answer to that, I know. It's because they know the depth of their depravity. And that's why the relief from it is so magnificent to them. That's why it's so important to admit that. It's out of the depth of that depravity that they find the need to be so close to God. And remember, we learned that last week in Matthew 5. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, the ones who come to the end of themselves. They understand that they really do have this issue in their life. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You don't have to tell them that they're depraved. They live with a sense of it every day. But it actually becomes an asset because it drives them to God. Finally, number seven, progress in authentic manhood will parallel my growing understanding of the depth and extent of my depravity. Paul, at the end of his life, said these words in 1 Timothy 1.15. Now, this is, a, this is Paul, the spiritual giant. At the end of his life, at the height of his maturity, he says this, Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the what? foremost of all. That's what made him great. That is what made him great. His humility to understand his nature also made him a man who could rise above that depravity because he was so aware of it. And any man who gets to the top spiritually will get there carrying this in his heart. Now, that's generally, that's just a general kind of flyby of the implications of depravity in every man's life. And I hope that those, as you think about those, and by the way, 
I'm, 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 I'm laying them on you. But for you to really appreciate these statements, you're going to have to go sit and just think about them for a while. But that's for all of us. Now, did you know depravity is also a sickness that appeals specifically to men in some specific areas? And I want to speak specifically to just three things. And we'll deal with a number of these in the second semester. But one of the things that I've learned over the years as I've learned uh, the scriptures is that, you know, the scriptures are constantly exhorting us in different directions. And one day, I don't know, th this may seem simple to you, but it was profound to me. One day as I was reading the scriptures and it was exhorting this and exhorting that, I realized everything it seems the scripture exhorts me in, I have a tendency to want to do the opposite. You notice that? I mean, you read the Ten Commandments and it tells you certain things to do and you can feel that even as it tells you that your bent is this way from it, away from it. And that helped me, especially with men, because when I go read the scriptures to men, it tells us certain things over and over, some of the same things over and over, and finally I got it. The reason it's telling me this over and over is because my natural bent is away from those things, to not do those things. And so I have to come to terms with that and ask God to help me move the direction He wants me to move in here, but i got to realize my bent is away from those things. So what are some of the specific male problems in depravity? Here are three. First, for men, depravity means that we have a natural tendency to avoid domestic responsibility. <laughs> Why is it that the Scripture over and over tells men to lead their homes? Because our tendency over and over again is to not do that. Why does it tell men over and over to love and protect and provide for their wives? as Christ loved the church, because our tendency is to ignore those things. Why does it tell us over and over again to treat them as equals, as a co-heir of the grace of life, to give our hearts to our children? Why is it that John the Baptist, when he came, one of his missions was to turn the hearts of fathers to their children? It's because the hearts of dads oftentimes turn away from their kids naturally. They get consumed in other things. And so the scriptures are there to redeem the depravity that is innate within us. That's why. It's because we don't naturally go those directions. And one of the things that we'll discuss in the second semester in a very positive, uplifting way, not in a hard-edged way like today, is how we move in a positive and empowered way to love our wives and love our children and give our hearts to them and be the righteous leaders that we need to be in our homes that they would admire and say to us, we're proud of you. That's what we'll look at next time. But I need you to know that depravity means that your inclination is away from those things. Secondly, depravity means that men will have a tendency to rule harshly over women and children. Why is it that in every culture women have to fight for equality and dignity? And why is it that in every culture, children have anger towards dad? Genesis tells us why. Genesis 3.6 makes an interesting statement. It's part of the curse. Now, you're not going to see the context of this, but I just want you to know it's in part of the curse. And God's speaking to the woman, and he says, Your desire shall be for your husband. But then the next verse says, And he shall rule over you. That's part of the curse. 
And the interesting word is that Hebrew word, mashal, there for rule over, is a word that implies he will dominate. He will rule harshly over you. Now that he's fallen, he doesn't know how in his nature to lead you in a way that would allow you to be all that you need to be. What he'll do naturally is move into the situation and with the strength of his personality and with the strength of his frame, he'll take advantage naturally. He'll rule over you. Not only that, but look how Paul speaks to dads and children. He says this in Ephesians. He says, and fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Why does he have to say that? Because the natural tendency of dads is to provoke their children to anger. Just like the other night watching the basketball game, my son's dribbling down the court, makes a mistake. My natural instinct is to get on him. After the game, I saw a dad walk up and the first thing he needed to say to his son is what he did wrong. And I saw that son turn with deep anger in his eyes and basically tell dad to kiss off. Why do we do that? And then you get in the car with the dad and he says, man, I shouldn't have said that to my son. I should have just built him up after the game. Why do we have a natural tendency to wound? Because it's in our nature. We need to be redeemed from that. And so Paul says, dads, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Lift them up. Empower them. And we need to cry out in our heart, oh God, yes, but help me because I can't get there without you. Because without being delivered from depravity, I'll rule harshly in my home. And then finally, depravity means that men tend to, to get lost in their careers and personal pursuits and ignore God's greater purposes for their lives. Of all people, Solomon needed knew of all people, Solomon knew that. Because that's exactly what he did. And so here's what he said about himself in the book of Ecclesiastes. He says, I've enlarged my works, I've increased houses, pools, gardens, I've collected for myself silver and gold and the pleasures of men, all that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. And then I considered all my activities, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind. It's empty. And see, men will naturally move that direction unless something pulls them back to that which is noble. Now here's the million dollar question as I finish. Is there a solution to all this? <laughs> and that is a million dollar question. And you know what? There is. It's a radical solution. It's a mysterious solution. It's a life-changing solution. It's a supernatural solution. It's a faith-leaping solution. And it's next week. And we'll see you then. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.